Distance balls. Sure, they go far, but do they do anything else? The new ERC Soft does. Callaway completely reinvented the way a distance ball performs. Engineered with a new, fast, hybrid cover and a graphene-infused dual soft-fast core, it's a new kind of distance ball, one that actually feels soft and spins more. And once you're on the green, ERC Soft's triple track technology will help you dial in your alignment. Get Callaway's longest ball with soft feel today at callawaygolf.ca. A police sergeant punched, kicked, and stomped on a highly intoxicated woman while she was in custody, and then she was charged with assault. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. We speak with Randy Richmond with the London Free Press, who looked into the assault on the woman and how the truth of what happened was ultimately uncovered and how it set her free. Later in the show, we will also hear from the woman herself who spoke with Randy for this podcast. If you have a moment, please fill out the survey in our show notes. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave us a rating and a review. So, Randy, tell me about the series We're the Cops. Well, we began looking into uh, a charge against a police officer. He was charged back in 2017, Sergeant Peter Paquette. And he pleaded guilty. guilty in a criminal trial that no one, no media managed to uh, know about. So I began digging into that that trial to see what would ha- what happened. And the more I, I dug into it, uh, the more I realized there was a large story here, uh, the extent of the assault, which never really came out, and the actions of the other officers in the police station at the time. Uh, so I, I began looking into the series that way and, and realized that there was there were a lot of issues raised by what happened, by the silence of the officers uh, in their official statements afterwards, and by the by what happened to the woman that uh, was assaulted in the police station. Uh, she was at first charged with assault herself and faced a criminal conviction um, until uh, a good lawyer started working on her behalf. So that's sort of how the series started, and it took uh, a long time to uh, to produce in part because we wanted to wait for all the um, the hearings in this professional uh, standards act hearing, service act hearing to continue. So we wanted to play it out. And so it took a long time to dig it all out and let it play out as well. What kind of roadblocks were you facing other than the time factor when you're waiting for some of these court processes to go through and the uh, quasi-judicial police disciplinary processes to happen? What else did you have to get past to get this story told? Well, first of all, we had to get the cooperation of the woman who was assaulted. And she was was battling alcoholism at the time. She was only 24. And she was in a rough state when she was arrested. And, and she was, uh, by her own account, out of control. And she's filled with guilt about her own role in this. And first we had to convince her. And it took a while to, to talk to us. Um, and then there was, you know, the usual getting documents. And we managed to get the official police statements and we managed to get uh, video surveillance that showed what happened in the police station that morning, uh, showed exactly what the officer did and exactly what she did. And then at the end of it, just as we were ready to publish, the uh, officer uh, applied to court to have uh, to put limits on what we could report um, specifically on some of the documents and video we, we had received. So it took about three and a half months to reach an out-of-court settlement 
that allowed us to tell our story. Uh, but you know that 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 certainly delayed it uh, into the summer and now into the fall. So I know that you spoke with uh, the woman who who we call Emily, and we'll hear from her in a little bit. Just in kind of broad strokes, what happened to Emily when she was brought into the police station that night or early morning? Sure. She was brought into the station that, that early morning and she was um, handcuffed and she had plastic ties around her ankles. And she was uh, in and out of, of, of coherence. At one point, she tries to turn over and kicks out. And the back of the uh, one of the constables obscures the camera's view, so you, you don't really see if she made contact. Uh, the officer uh, takes a step back. And that began everything. S- Sergeant Paquette be- began, it began like a five minutes um, kind of a- assault and exchange. He kicked her, he uh, stepped on her, he uh, carried, carried her over and tossed her onto a restraint stretcher. He punched her in the eye. Uh, then he put his foot on her and like sort of um, stepped, stomped on her a bit, uh, about six times on her inner neck area, even her head area. Then he stepped on her again. Um, and at one point later on, he kind of jammed his uh, forearm into her jaw. And all the time, um, they were they had verbal verbal exchanges too. But he was also vowing that you know they could let the get the cuffs off her and they could really go at it and. Uh, Basically, along the lines that he, you know, was going to make her pay for for he accused her of biting him. Uh, there was no proof of that on the video, but he he was quite angry, and you know, basically he he lost control. And so, how did she come to be charged with assault? Was it related to just that incident, or was there any charges related to her being brought into the station to begin with? Right, she was charged originally with uh, property damage, and she when she was being brought into the station, they alleged that that she. Uh, bit an officer. Um, and then she was charged with that. And she was charged with the assaults when she kicked out an officer and she was charged with uh, biting Sergeant Paquette. So she faced these three charges and their statements, their official statements the next day of Sergeant Paquette and, f- and two other officers, there are four there, uh, two other officers basically went, talked about a lot about how she fought and resisted them. The descriptions range from one kick to several kicks, from one bite to several bites to continued fighting. And so they, you know, she was charged based on those statements, but there wasn't a, a single word about what had happened to, uh, to her. And while she was being assaulted by Sergeant Paquette, by the way, she was being held by three to four other officers. I, I don't think they were holding her to enable the assault, but they certainly were holding her and not a single one on the video tried to stop their sergeant, tried to step in, said anything, did anything to stop the assault. And certainly the next day in their official statements, not a single person mentioned anything uh, but words about how she was assaulting police. So how did we get from her being charged with assaulting police, the officers not mentioning anything in their official statements about what transpired during the confrontation to charges against her being stayed, uh, the sergeant being charged with assault, uh, and ultimately uh, receiving some discipline for his actions. Well, she, uh, you know, she was so guilt-ridden and, um, uh, you know, so ashamed of, her, ashamed of herself. She almost took an early deal from the Crown's office, which would have given her a criminal conviction uh, if she'd pleaded pleaded guilty. 
But she got a good lawyer, uh, a lawyer named Craig McLean, and he thought, well, I should see that video surveillance because there must be video surveillance of what happened. And that's, he started asking for that in, in November of 2016, and he kept getting resistance or reluctance or questioning from the Crown's office. Every time he went to court or he, he would send an email or fax, they, they kept asking him about the relevance of it. So it took him a long time and, and a long fight to get that video surveillance. And eventually it came to the Crown's attention. The Crown eventually said, okay, fine, we'll go ask the police for it. And as soon as the Crown saw the video, they immediately set in motion withdrawing the charge, charges against her and launching charges against him. Uh, it was clear from the video um, uh, you know, evidence who the aggressor was. It was clear who the assailant was. And that's how uh, it changed you know, the, the next year, uh, in the spring of 2017, her charges were withdrawn and uh, his were, uh, he was charged. And that lawyer, by the way, um, it was kind of the last case he ever did because just as it was all finishing up, just after he got the video, he was diagnosed with a, a brain tumor. And unfortunately, uh, uh, last year he died. The sergeant was, uh, he pleaded guilty to assault. Was he given any kind of professional sanction or any sentence of any kind? What kind of punishment did he get? Well, when he pleaded guilty in the criminal court, he was given a conditional discharge with a year to fulfill some of the sentence requirements, uh, such as getting counseling, anger management, and to work on whatever personal issues he had at the time that um, he says you know led to that. And then uh, about a year later at a, a Police Services Act hearing where he was docked, I think about 200 hours of pay, but he did not lose his rank and he must continue to take counseling. So he's back at work, back as a sergeant, um, didn't lose his job or his rank. And uh, as far as, you know, the police are concerned, it's all it's it's all done and in the past. And, you know, everything was worked out to everybody's satisfaction. Now we're going to hear a bit of your conversation with Emily. Can you set that up for us? What, what are we going to hear? We're going to hear Emily talk about sort of what she remembers. And the night's a bit of a blur to her. Um, the actual incident and the the months afterwards were just a, a time of her trying to uh, regroup and reset her life. And it's it's worthwhile knowing that that's been three years now, and she's uh, been three years clean and sober, and she's got her life back um, the way she wants it, or, or almost the way she wants it. She's still suffering herself from trauma by this. She you know she doesn't has had no inclination to sue the police or to seek any kind of vengeance. She wants to tell her story because she thinks they need better training in dealing with people in crisis, uh, in dealing with their own problems, um, and de-escalation, things like that. So, you know, that, that's sort of where she's at now. Um, she's doing well. She's a very smart uh, woman, and uh, she's sort of on a, on a good path now. Um, this kind of you know, was the bottom, was the bottom of her, her spiral downwards was this moment. More on this story. Uh, we're the cops, uh, lfpress.com. There's a couple of notes for our listeners in our series. The victim requested us a pseudonym, Emily, because all charges against her were dropped. We agreed for this recording, we agreed to alter her voice. During the interview, the woman describes her injuries. We can't confirm which of those injuries are the direct result of the assault by Sergeant Paquette. It's possible some of her injuries could have happened when she blacked out from drinking or when she was arrested before being taken to the police station. 
You're arrested the morning of September the 6th, 2016, and assaulted at the London police station by Sergeant Peter Paquette. What do you remember about the assault? Well, I was really, I remember being very angry. And then when the anger subsided, I was kind of sick with guilt and shame. But I can remember my head getting squeezed really hard, which I, when I think back, I think my head getting stepped on onto the pavement because I kind of came out of my blackout and I was in so much pain. And I remember coming to in the hospital bed and I was handcuffed to the rails of the bed. Everyone was really mad at me. What do you remember about the injuries you suffered from the assault and, and the days afterwards? My head, my hair was matted up against the back of my skull. It was so bad that I couldn't, I couldn't brush it out for like a week. I think the skin had been ripped partially, so I couldn't actually brush my hair. And it was just in a knot for, until my mom, um, I think she used like oil or something and brushed it out. I couldn't use my hands because they felt like they were mangled and broken but they weren't actually broken. They were just so swollen and bruised and cut, but I couldn't use them to do anything. So I I just felt like I fell down like a flight of stairs or something. So I couldn't really get out of bed for like a few days. I just remember feeling like I was dying, but like emotionally as well. I think that was a lot of it as well. <laughs> Maybe you could talk a bit about about the bruising that, that you suffered. My eye was bruised really badly and my wrists had been like zip tied really tightly and because I was in a blackout and I couldn't feel any pain I like had tried relentlessly to get out of the zip ties and they were there was like indents from the zip ties in my wrists and my ankles and there was my back and my stomach was really bruised and uh, there's just bruises everywhere. And after all that, police charged you with assault. And your lawyer spent seven months trying to get video from the police station that showed what happened. Um, what were you feeling and doing in those seven months uh, that you're facing a criminal conviction uh, for assaulting police? What were you doing? What were you thinking? How were you, how were you trying to get your life back? I just was like so done with everything. I just didn't want to... And I had a probation too, so I couldn't really do any, like I couldn't, I had like lost a lot of my friends anyway at this point from drinking and the people that were my friends were big drinkers anyway. So I was pretty alone and my family was really angry with me and scared of me that I was going to relapse sort of. They were worried for that. I just couldn't do anything. And so all, not doing anything for such a long time ended up amounting into something for me because I had the, that, that sobriety time. And once that time was under my, my, like once I had that time, the whole idea that the police were sort of hiding that tape, I kind of was a little bit hopeful that maybe it was because <laughs> there was something on it. Cause I, the feelings that I have when I think about that night are just so, like, I definitely have PTSD over it. Like, every time I think about it, I, f I feel like, you know, I feel guilty, but I also, and I feel shameful and I feel fearful and I feel like that's time that I can't remember and it's very scary. After I had been sober for 
three months, which was the longest I'd been sober prior to that incident, things just came a little more naturally for me. And I was able to sort of hold on to that sobriety. And I was able to go to AA meetings without someone showing up and forcing me into a car and just lived every day, like one day at a time. And then I was kind of able to build another life out of that. And After the video came to light, um, charges against you were withdrawn and Sergeant Paquette was charged with assault. You didn't attend his criminal hearing and you didn't attend his Police Services Act hearing uh, where he apologized. Um, what do you think now of, of what he did, the assault and not talking about it and, and the punishment he received? Was it enough? Was it fair to you? Just going off me knowing who I am when I'm drunk and angry, I can imagine that I was quite a handful. And, and uh, sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, I, I feel like I deserved that in a way. But then if I take myself out of the situation and I put like my sister or like someone's daughter, or someone's friend or anyone else in that situation that I was in, then I'm like, that's fucking wrong. And that's not acceptable. You cannot treat people like that. And for him, you know, I, I'm so embarrassed about my behavior, but I was drunk and I'm not using that as, as an excuse, but he's a, he's a police officer and he's in a position where they're seeing multiple people a night that are just off their rockers. And I'm, you know, it makes me question how the police are handling other people who pose a bigger threat than me, who are bigger than me, who are stronger than me, who are a little more crazy on that said night than I was, but I don't know what the right answers are, but I don't know why they kept coming into the cell and why I was at the hospital twice. If I was a police officer, I would have handcuffed them or restrained them in some way and left them the fuck alone for six hours. And that's how you deal with somebody that's crazy because you're gonna go crazy dealing with a crazy person. You can't deal with crazy people. Like you gotta let them be and then go back at it at a different angle at a different time after the situation has de-escalated. And I just find it really shocking, shocking that that behavior from the police that night. And, and for him to be a sergeant and be a, a, you know, a figure of authority, all those younger officers are watching him and how are they gonna react in the next situation? You know, it's just, it's such a domino effect and it's shocking. Well, he uh, apologized publicly at his Police Services Act hearing. What do you think about the apology? Um, what would you say to him now if you could? I never even cared to listen to the apology, to be honest. But I, I forgive him, but I didn't care to listen to what he had to say. Well, and while you were assaulted, let's talk about the other officers. There were four other officers held you uh, at the time. Uh, none of them tried to stop the assault, either with action or words. And they did not report the assault the next day in their official statements. What do you think about what they did and what that says about police culture? In some, some way, I kind of feel sorry for them because, you know, that's so unfortunate that they can't stand up for them for what's right in a I don't know you, it's just unfortunate that they 
reacted or didn't react the way they did because they had a, an opportunity to to de-escalate the situation. They could have taken Paquette and been like, "Hey, man, you need to take five minutes. We're gonna we're gonna talk to her." You, I don't know. Maybe that even happened. I have no idea. But everyone gets in over their head, and it doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're a police officer and you're in over your head, you need to be able to recognize that and you need to be able to take yourself out of that situation instead of escalating. It's like, I'm so drunk, I don't even know what's going on. And I'm not saying that's an excuse, but like, I literally cannot remember a thing. And I was so out of control. And it's just unfortunate that a bunch of pe grown people with that are supposed to be, in f you know, protecting and upholding the law were not able to find a common ground and I just it's unfortunate I don't I, I feel terrible that I was the cause of that but it just really makes me question the way that they are in other scenarios so and we're almost done uh, how are you doing now how, how is your life now I'm doing great I'm looking to go back to school and I'm looking to get into a career that is that um, is more fulfilling to me than the one I'm in right now. I'm looking to go into addictions and mental health. It's but it's been hard for me to kind of jump into that because I've just wanted to make sure that I'm totally fine and I'm I'm in a position where I can help other people with my experience. And I haven't really felt strong enough yet, but I think I'm getting there. And are you clean and sober? As they yes. Say? Yes. Three years sober. You've been talking to me for a long time now, and it hasn't been always been easy telling your story. Why is it important for you to tell your story? It's been really hard for me because I'm so shameful and I don't talk about it to anybody because I'm so embarrassed. You know, based on what I've started out wanting to do with my life was to help people. And I think having um, turned the situation around into something that's to something that, you know, I'm, I'm not waking up crying anymore every morning and I can start my day like at eight o'clock AM and I'm not having a nap at noon for three hours because I can't emotionally handle the day. So I, I think it's important that this story gets out because the only way that things change is if people know about them and people are outraged and people want things to, you know, change. And it's a, it's a good story. Like it'll get people, you know, thinking about what the hell is going on in the, in the, when I'm strong enough one day, I would like to be able to be more open with the story and be able to try and actually do something about it. I just don't really know what to do right now. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Randy Richmond. More from him at lfpress.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.